Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland, and today we are going to continue the story of Sony. This is part two of a part series. Still don't know how many it's going to be, but I'm hoping for three or four. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, this part of the story gets really interesting. You know, we, we talked in the last episode about the founding of Sony, which originally was called Totsuko, and how uh, they had a, a, a pretty ambitious but rough start because they were trying to get established in a tumultuous time in Japan's past just after World War II. In this episode, we're looking at how things picked up from about 1958 forward. So let's uh, pick up from there. 1958, Sony got an interesting start to the year. The company had shipped thousands of radios to the United States. Now, at that time, Sony didn't have a presence in the U.S. Like they, There was no Sony Corporation of America at that time. So they had to depend upon other uh, companies to end up handling U.S. sales of Sony products and distribution as well. So they were working primarily with a company called Agrod, A-G-R-O-D, to handle U.S. sales. And they were distributing through the Delmonico International Sales Network, uh, which was primarily based on New York. The radios from Sony were in a Delmonico warehouse, and on January 13th, 1958, a group of thieves broke into the Delmonico warehouse and stole 4,000 Sony radios. And even more interesting than that, they didn't touch the other radios that were in the warehouse. Only the Sony ones. Now that turned out to be great free publicity for Sony because the thieves took Sony's radios and left all the others behind. So something must be special about the Sony radios. They had to be better than the others, because those were the ones that the thieves specifically targeted. Sony was of two minds. The executives were of two minds of this. One was that, well, shucks, now we have to build replacement units for the ones that were stolen, because we still want to sell things in the U.S., but also, yay, free advertising! Everyone is going to want a Sony radio because they're good enough to steal. A weird thing to think about, but it actually did give them a, kind of a beneficial view in the marketplace. Now, late in 1958, uh, Sony would end up introducing a new, smaller pocket radio. You remember in the last episode, they had coined the term pocketable radio. This one was called the TR610. Very catchy. Almost all of the models I'll be talking about have a letter and number designation. Um, sometimes they would end up getting a different name, like a, a, a nickname or a common name that would be used. But uh, this particular pocket radio would become very popular, selling half a million sets globally by 1960, so two years after it launched. This was the product that helped make Sony a household name in, in a lot of different areas around the world. Although the biggest successes for the company were still ahead of it. Uh, they were also making other electronics, such as the C37 condenser microphone. It had been trying to break into the microphone business for a while, because the broadcast company NHK, you might have remembered that I, I talked about them in the last episode, 
Well, NHK at that time would only use foreign-made microphones. They didn't make, they didn't use any Japan-made microphones because most of the microphones coming out of Japan were pretty lousy. They were not of very high quality, and so a lot of the equipment that the NHK broadcast company would use came from places like Germany. Now, Sony wanted to change that. They said this is a, a national disgrace that our own broadcast company is using foreign technology because the stuff that's being made out of Japan isn't good enough. We are going to change that. Now, their first prototype was less than a total success. It had a celluloid diaphragm with silver plating on one side, and it would occasionally, you know, catch fire, which is exciting, but not something you want when you're broadcasting. I mean... Your audience might find it really invigorating, and so would you, but in a totally different way. They knew that they had to change that design. So they ended up switching from celluloid to uh, mylar, essentially that same material you find in those silvery balloons, and they used gold particles deposited on the mylar, and they found that it worked much better. The company produced the first C-37 microphones shortly before television began to become popular in Japan. It had a later start in Japan than it did in the United States. Now, by getting these C-37 microphones to broadcasters, just as TV was taking off, Sony also managed to get more advertising because you could see the Sony brand name on the microphones on the television screen. So Sony was able to get another leg up. It was a very savvy move for Sony to make at this time in its history. By the way, if you're not familiar with the difference between condenser microphones and dynamic microphones, in general, a condenser mic can pick up everything in an area. Um, th these are really popular because they're very simple microphones. They tend to be inexpensive if you're getting something like uh, the blue microphones, which, by the way, I, I love the blue microphones, but they are I think they're all condensers. They, they might have a dynamic microphone as well, but the ones I'm familiar with are all condenser mics. And tiny little noises in your environment will get picked up by those microphones. It's great if you're trying to record something in the round, if you've got a whole bunch of people and like maybe you're musicians or you're having a conversation and you just want to have one microphone. It's great for that. But if you are a single person talking into it, like a podcaster, and you just want to have a, a direct relationship with the listeners on the other side... I always recommend dynamic mics over condensers. The The downside with dynamic mic is you have to address the microphone pretty much right in front of it. You can't go too far to the left or to the right or back off too much or the sound drops in volume very, very quickly. But on the flip side of it, it doesn't pick up all the other noises that happen to be in the area. So you get a cleaner sound uh, as far or at least you hear more of what the person potentially intends you to hear. Still, getting back to Sony, at this time, very, very early, you know, 1958, late 50s, they started to experiment with making videotape recorders. They had already made audio tape recorders, and then they started thinking, well, how about we apply the same approach to making a videotape recorder? Now, they were not the first company to do this. Other corporations had already started to make videotape recorders. Companies like RCA and Ampex were already in the game. These videotape recorders were meant for companies, like broadcast companies, or sometimes medical facilities. They weren't meant for consumers. It wasn't like they were going to make uh, VCRs. First of all, they weren't VCRs because VCR is video cassette recorder. This is before cassettes. The tape was literally reels of tape. 
Uh, but Sony really wanted to get into that market and they wanted to be the company to create the first VTR produced in Japan. VTR stands for videotape recorder. Now, the early models that Sony developed left something to be desired and were meant purely for commercial businesses, not home use, as I mentioned before. But still, this became one of Sony's early products. By the end of 1958, Sony was listed in the first section of the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Now, this one marked a really big leap for the company. They had already been on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, but in a different section in the over-the-counter market of the stock exchange. The Tokyo Stock Exchange was divided up into different sections. And so the first section was much more prestigious. And uh, it also included a lot more of the larger, older Japanese companies. So now Sony's kind of like the little guy muscling in on the big guy's territory. Uh, and the folks over at Sony were beside themselves. They were very happy about this because it showed that their hard work was paying off. Now, in 1959, a Sony employee named Leo Asaki uh, would invent a new solid-state component, the tunnel diode, also known as the Asaki diode. Now, I'm not going to dive too far into the technology here because I don't want to get buried in it, but you do need to know exactly, you know, kind of what a diode does in, at least in general. So basically a diode directs electricity traffic. It's kind of like a one-way street. It allows current to flow in one direction and prevents it from flowing in the reverse direction. That's the ideal. Now, in reality, that's not exactly how it works because at least with some diodes, like if you get the voltage up high enough, you can reverse current across the diode. Uh, but it's not generally designed to do that. That's not the purpose, typically. Uh, but, you know, basically that's the idea is that it's a one-way street. The Asaki diode is a semiconductor that can work really well at very high frequencies. Now, this set it apart from other other types of solid-state uh components at the time. A lot of them worked fine, but not at high frequencies. If you were just creating a transistor radio, low frequencies might be fine. But let's say you want to get into something else like creating a transistorized television or a microwave oven. You need to have transistors that can work at higher frequencies. So this ended up being a huge development in Sony. Sony began to look into using the diode to make those more complex electronics. And Ibuka's goal was to build the world's first transistor-based television set. By the end of the year, the company had done it. They created a prototype of the TV-8-301. That was the first non-projection-type transistorized television, and they launched it in May 1960. Now, the transistors took up much less space than vacuum tubes, which meant you could create a much smaller television. Technically, this TV was a portable TV. It even had a handle on the top of the casing, which was made out of metal. Uh, so you could get this, you know, just grab it by the top and port it around. It was a little hefty, weighed about 12 pounds. It measured uh, 8 by 7 by 9 inches. And it cost about as much as conventional televisions did. And, of course, those were bigger and not meant to move around and had vacuum tube technology rather than transistors. In fact, the television market in Japan was pretty small. And even globally, it wasn't that big. Televisions were still considered a luxury item in a lot of places. 
And on top of all of that, the TV8301 wasn't terribly reliable when it first came out. They frequently broke down. They, in fact, got a nickname. They started to be called Sony's Frail Little Baby. It's not terribly complimentary. In 1960, Akio Morita would make the decision to open a branch of Sony in the United States. This would become the Sony Corporation of America. And the reason for opening up a branch in the U.S. was that Sony was earning about half of its revenue at that time from the overseas market. So 50% of its revenue was coming from Japan and the other 50% was from everywhere else. If they were able to move manufacturing and marketing overseas, they could end up making even more money. They could save in costs and they could respond faster to the market. It just made good business sense. So Sony became the first Japanese company to enter the American market this way, conducting business like an American corporation, but operated by a Japanese company. Also at that time, Sony was growing tired of selling and distributing Sony products through other American companies. You know, I mentioned those uh, previously uh, with uh, Agrod being the company that was handling sales and Delmonico handling distribution. Sony was getting tired of that. Uh, they would prefer to be able to handle that themselves, especially since some of those companies were resisting Sony's push to get the products in stores across the United States, Delmonico in particular. Delmonico was saying, well, our market is in New York, and it would take a lot more effort for us to get this stuff across the entire U.S., and Sony, Sony's aspirations were to have those products really hit the U.S. hard, but in order to do that, they needed to take over that distribution part. So... Creating a base of operations within the U.S. would allow them to do that. Uh, after that Delmonico problem, uh, they decided that they wanted to uh, get out of that contract, and that was going to be a hard sell, right? Delmonico had this exclusive contract with Sony, so how do you get out of it? Sony was actually able to get out of it because Delmonico violated the contract agreement. Delmonico had an agreement to distribute the radios that Sony created, but not the TVs. But Delmonico said they would end up distributing the TV8301 in the United States. They said it without Sony giving their approval. And that was when Akio Morita said, all right, that's enough. We're not going to deal with that. We're going to cut ties with Delmonico and we're going to start doing this ourselves. Now, it wasn't as simple as opening up a shop. In Japan, any company wishing to open a business in another country first had to secure the approval from the Ministry of Finance in Japan. But the company was able to obtain permission from the Japanese government and open the Sony Corporation of America on February 15, 1960. Their base of operations was a warehouse on 514 Broadway. That's where they stored their products that had formerly been in Delmonico's buildings. There's actually a story about how several Sony executives on one cold night in 1960, rented eight trucks, loaded up all of the electronics in Delmonico's warehouse that were, that belonged to Sony, and then shipped them across to 514 Broadway to put them in the new warehouse, uh, which tells you a lot about the dedication of the executives if they're going to take part in that kind of activity. Later in 1960, Sony hit the 1 million transistors produced per month milestone, which is incredible because, again, they were still considered a small company. Uh, one of those things that a lot of companies just expected Sony would die off. They didn't think that there was going to be any staying power because they didn't have the history or the size of 
the larger, more established companies in Japan. But it had come a long way from being that first Japanese manufacturer of transistors. And to meet demand, Sony executives decided they needed to build a new factory. This happened pretty frequently throughout Sony's history. Uh, they, they would build factories in different parts of Japan. Uh, they realized that Tokyo wasn't really a good option because the city had so little available space. And what space there was was going for a very, very high price, very high demand. So they started looking outside of Tokyo, and they found a spot 46 kilometers outside the city uh, near Atsugi, Japan. And they were able to get rights to 165,000 square meters of space. Now, the amount they paid for that 165,000 square meters of space would have only got them about 10,000 square meters in Tokyo. That's how much more expensive it was inside the city versus out in the country. You know, it's more than a factor of 10 which was kind of incredible. Uh, that space went not just to a factory, but also to male and female dormitories. So again, you had the employees living on the campus where they were working. A very different kind of world than most of America. They also faced another challenge. Uh, Atsugi was a place, still is a place, that would occasionally get dust storms, particularly in the winter. So transistors and circuit boards in general, uh, solid-state electronics, uh, they are not good friends with dust. Dust is a bad component to have mix up with your electronics. So it became a challenge to find ways to create a dust-free environment for the production of transistors. In August 1960, Sony would build a research lab called the Sony Research Center. The company put Michio Hatoyama in charge of the lab. Leo Asaki, meanwhile, quit Sony to go and work for IBM. Uh, and, and Isaki had actually gone to Hatoyama and said, Hey, uh, Sony wants to put you in charge of the lab. They're going to come to you and ask you to be in charge. You should totally do it. And so Hatoyama at first thought, well, that's impossible. Why would Sony want me to be in charge of the research center? But they did ask him, and he said, okay. And then he sees that Isaki quits Sony and goes to work for IBM. And then he jokingly, Hatoyama jokingly said he had been duped by Isaki because Isaki probably would have been the head of the lab had he stayed at Sony instead of moved to IBM. There didn't seem to be any bad blood from what I could tell. It was just one of those things where Hatoyama said, you know, if it weren't for the fact that Asaki was leaving, I never would have gotten this job. Perhaps the biggest news around this same time was that the Japanese government gave Sony permission to issue ADR stock. Now, ADR stands for American Depository Receipt, and it's a type of Japanese stock that can be sold in the American securities market. Typically, and I'm not going to get into too much detail because honestly, I don't understand it when you get down to a certain level. Finances to me are a type of dark magic that I probably should not look into or else my eyes will burn out of my head or something. But here's how it works at a basic level. You have an American bank and the American bank would issue ADR stocks against Sony stocks deposited in the American bank itself. So the American bank would be in charge of handling all the complicated issues that otherwise would cause problems for the company back in Japan. That includes things like exchange rates, uh, shipping actual physical stocks to stockholders, that kind of thing. Stuff that is legitimately difficult to do if you're operating an overseas 
uh, company, especially in the era before everything goes digital, when everything's still hard copies, uh, making sure you can get the physical copies of the stock to the customer and not have someone else steal it or have it get lost. It was a big deal. So this actually allowed Sony to do some business in the United States stock market, but not directly issuing stock. Uh, the Sony ADRs hit the New York Stock Exchange in June 1961. When it opened, they were valued at $17.50 per share, uh, but it would end up going up quite a bit throughout that day. They actually sold out of the shares in uh, about an hour, and they had 2 million shares available when it went on sale. So people were really excited to get a chance to invest in Sony at that time here in the United States. 1961 also saw Sony launch the first all-transistor amp tape recorder from Japan. That was the TC777, also known as the 3-7. And Sony also launched the SV201, which was the world's first transistor-based videotape recorder, the VTR. So it was transistor-based, which meant that it was smaller, like a fifth the size of your traditional VTR. Uh, still too big for consumers, way too big for consumers. Um, and to build the VTR, Sony actually ended up working with Ampex, which was one of the companies that was known in that space already at the time. Sony shared its expertise in transistors, and Ampex shared its expertise in VTR technology. Now, the SV201 could record video and do slow motion playback, and it could also capture still shots. But it also weighed more than 400 pounds, and it only had two tape heads, which unfortunately meant that no one really had a good use for the SV201. It wasn't versatile enough for broadcast companies, which often had uh, VTRs that had multiple tape heads. And it was too big and clunky for a consumer and too expensive. So you really didn't have a market for this particular piece of technology. But the company didn't give up. They did decide that it was important to develop a strategy that would be focusing just on uh, industrial uses and another strategy that would focus just on consumer uses rather than try and walk a middle line in and down between the two. Because if you walk the middle line, you get squished just like grape, as Mr. Miyagi would say. The company also took another shot at developing an even smaller portable television, this one with a 5-inch screen. And in order to do that, they had to find various ways to miniaturize all the different components to fit them into a small form factor that included a cathode ray tube and a TV electron gun, uh, as well as finding ways to fix the problems that the older television set had, primarily those temperature tolerances I was talking about. Those old sets had synchronization issues. If you expose them to heat, then the audio and video signals wouldn't match up anymore. So everything would be, it would look like a really badly dubbed movie all the time. And since the, uh, TV8301 went on sale in May. Uh, it wasn't long before those problems began to pop up because the, again, technology was developed in the colder months. It goes on sale in, in late spring and then the summer rolls around and that's where you end up seeing all these issues. In response to this, Sony actually ended up building a test chamber in its, uh, in its factory and subjected new designs to high heat and humidity. Actually, I guess technically this was in the research center. So they have this chamber, and they would increase humidity by boiling water inside the chamber. Uh, that would end up creating steam and raise the humidity. They used electric heaters to increase the temperature. And then they started to develop the components for the new TV. 
And the new components worked much better in high heat and humidity. But then they found out that lower temperatures caused similar problems, so they were back to the drawing board. They also tested the television's performance when subjected to vibrations. And the way they did this was they'd have one of these little portable TVs, they'd put it in a car, and they'd turn the television on, and they'd have people driving up and down the highway, sometimes quite quickly. And, in fact, researchers were pulled over for speeding at one point, and the cat was nearly out of the bag. Sony had kept this tiny 5-inch screen television quiet, but now the police had pulled over employees with one of these televisions. Uh, but fortunately, that did not end up spoiling the secret. Uh, two people who got to see it before anyone else did outside of Sony were pretty important. They were the emperor and empress of Japan. They came to visit Sony's HQ, and they were allowed to go into a uh, quiet room and see this 5-inch screen and they were told, please don't tell anyone about it. And they kept their trap shut. Once it was ready, the TV had the designation of the TV5-303, but it was better known as the Micro TV. And it would go on sale in 1962. Now, over in New York, Sony opened up a showroom on October 1st, 1962. And it was a real chaotic mess leading up to that opening. Because they discovered that construction policies in the United States are different than they are in Japan. Uh, they did not expect to run into the problem of having to hire various contractors for all the different types of systems within a building. You know, they would usually end up hiring one construction company in Japan, and then that construction company would be responsible for getting all of the various systems uh, installed, even if that meant working with subcontractors. In the United States, Sony had to do all that hiring itself. So they had different uh, people there to work on electricity, on plumbing, as well as construction. And everyone was trying to work in the same space at the same time at different rates of work. And it was chaos. There was also a language barrier that made things even more difficult, obviously. But Sony managed to hold a popular but somewhat crazy opening on uh, October 1st, 1962. When the micro TV went on sale on October 4th, it sold out almost immediately. And there's actually a, a cute story about this portable television before it ever went on sale in the United States. So Frank Sinatra, if you don't know who Frank Sinatra is, ask your parents, was in Japan and he visited Sony's headquarters and he got a chance to see the micro TV because at that time it was already being sold in Japan. So it was no longer a secret in Japan, but it wasn't on sale in the United States yet. So he sees this little television and he asks, could I take one of those back with me? Because this thing is amazing. But the, the Japanese engineers explained the channel settings in the United States and in Japan are different. So you wouldn't be able to tune into channels back in the U.S. You would be on the wrong frequency. So you wouldn't be able to get the, the feed that you would want. But Akio Morita promised Frank Sinatra he would send one of these sets to Sinatra as soon as the American versions were produced. So then October 4th, Sony begins to sell these micro TVs in the United States. And on October 5th, Marita would go to Paramount Pictures in California personally and deliver a micro TV to Sinatra as promised. I think that's pretty awesome. I've got a similar story about a computer game, but it's not quite as impressive. It wasn't delivered to me by hand. Uh, the micro TV actually really put Sony on the map. The transistor radio had done a lot, but the micro TV was the first product that everyone 
even if they weren't didn't have plans to buy one, they wanted one because it was just such an interesting, cool product. A tiny television you could take with you. It was the first truly successful product that the Sony Corporation of America got to handle. The tape recorder, which was also successful, was still managed by another American company. Uh, that was with uh, Agrod, I think. So while the tape recorder was a success in America, Sony Corporation of America didn't have anything to do with it because that that still was dependent upon a prior relationship with a, a uh, an agent here in the U.S. The micro-TV was the first successful product that the Sony Corporation of America got to handle all on its own. Also in 1962, Sony marketed its second transistor-based VTR. You remember that first one was 400 pounds and nobody wanted it. This second one was called the PV-100, and it was, again, meant for industrial and academic use, not home use. It was considered to be portable, though it was still pretty hefty, V- VTR. It wasn't like easy to move around, but it was considered to be more portable than your typical VTR. And its price was 2.48 million yen, which was pretty expensive. One of the first big customers of this particular type of video tape recorder, however, were airlines, specifically American Airlines and Pan American uh, Airlines at the time. They wanted these VTRs to replace film systems for in-flight films because films, they, you know, when you're actually using film, it has a tendency to break over time and get damaged. The film quality can degrade. Video was a little bit more robust, although the early implementations of Sony VTRs meant that uh, it wasn't like a cassette. It was still reel to reel. So it was still easy to cause damage to the stuff. And often, while they had projected that these reels would last for 40 viewings, the reality was more like one, so a little bit short of the mark. But it was, that was largely because of the way people were loading the video into systems. It wasn't that the product was faulty. It was that it was hard to use uh, without causing damage to the, the tape if you weren't being careful. And often, if you're a flight attendant, I mean, you've got so many things you have to worry about. And most of them are way more important than the in-flight entertainment system. Uh, so ha- asking people to set aside extra time to very carefully manage the entertainment system was not a high priority for a lot of flight attendants, and thus it ended up having some issues. Meanwhile, back over in the Sony research department, Sony engineers were busy developing an electronic calculator. Now, like other Sony products, they were using a trial-and-error approach. Uh, They found that the Isaki diodes, which were so great in the transistorized television, were not suitable for calculators. They had to develop an alternative. And in the summer of 1962, they developed a prototype calculator, and it was actually an electric typewriter connected to a calculator. You would feed your uh, equation or whatever, or your your different uh, figures, into the calculator, and it would actually print the results on paper. So it used the electronic typewriter to, or electric typewriter, I should say, to print the uh, results. They would do some more prototypes after that, and eventually Sony executives, who at first were really reluctant to even invest the resources into making a calculator, they didn't see the value in it initially, they changed their minds after they started seeing the uh, prototypes that were coming out of this research. And the team rededicated itself to building a working consumer model. 
1964, Sony would show off the MD5 calculator at the New York World's Fair, and it was a big hit. The calculator could handle numbers up to eight digits in length, which was a big deal at that time. And it could also do multiplication, which was something earlier calculators could not do. They could do addition and subtraction, but not multiplication. In fact, if you wanted to do a multiplication problem, you really just had to do an addition problem over and over and over again to find the answer. Now, the M in MD5 stood for Minerva, the goddess of wisdom, and it was followed by the MD6, which improved upon its predecessor by adding a decimal point. Uh, following models improved the form factor, so it got smaller over time, and they also added more functionality, and Sony managed to establish itself as a player in the calculator and eventually computer space. Around that same time, Sony was debuting the 19-inch Chromatron color TV. That was in September 1964. It became the fifth Sony product. 1964, and we're only talking about the fifth Sony product. Uh, the other four would include the tape recorder, the transistor radio, the transistor TV, and the video tape recorder. However, that Chromatron wasn't perfect out of the gate. Like many Sony products, it had some bugs in it. Um, early Sony products, I should say. Some design flaws made mass production impractical of the Chromatron, so the team had to go back and try and figure out how to engineer around those. And uh, so it, it while it had been unveiled, it wasn't hitting the market yet. They needed to fix these problems so that mass production would become possible, thus allowing for producing enough sets to meet demand and also not have the price be astronomical. The actual set based on the Chromatron wouldn't go into mass production until 1968, and by then they renamed it the Trinitron. Um, also around that time, the company announced that it was developing a videotape recorder for home use. This one was called the CV-2000. It weighed 15 kilograms, which is about 33 pounds, and according to Sony's history, it wasn't that much heavier than the average tape recorder. So that tells you how heavy these electronics were at the time. 33 pounds is pretty hefty. Uh, this was a reel-to-reel -reel machine, so it was not, a, again, not a cassette. It was reel-to-reel, um, and it would take some time before home consumers would start to adopt the CV-2000. Usually, it, just like some of the other technologies, you first saw it in industrial use, uh, hospitals, factories, schools, and then eventually making its way into consumer homes. Uh, and it was able to to reproduce black and white images, not color. In 1965, Sony lands a contract with IBM to develop magnetic tape for computer data storage and use. Now, this seems like it's nothing, but it was huge news, enormous news that IBM, which had previously been using 3M as its uh, provider for magnetic tape, would turn to Sony, a foreign company, that just a few years previous had been so small that most companies didn't even consider it a competitor. IBM was a much larger company with a much longer history. This was a huge deal. In fact, Thomas Watson himself, the chairman of IBM, traveled to Japan and visited Sony's office in Tokyo to meet with executives. This is the guy the Watson computer is named after. Now, the following year, the two companies partnered to build a production facility for magnetic tapes in the United States, uh, which, of course, meant that Sony first had to get approval from Japanese government because that was still a thing at the time. Now, at this time, both the U.S. and Japan were in economic recessions. 
It was a tough time all over the place. Sony's stock price had dropped, as did a lot of other companies. It wasn't that Sony had done something wrong. It's that this economic depression was affecting lots of people. And out of desperation, Sony sent a representative to IBM to see if the company would be interested in investing in Sony by purchasing some stock. And IBM actually jumped at the chance to do it. And Sony ended up making 300 million yen in the transaction, which alone was enough to keep the company going and to start kind of an avalanche effect where more and more companies began to invest in the Japanese economy. And it really turned things around for Japan. So Sony's move kind of was the initial event that caused a greater investment into Japanese corporations and uh, really turned things around. It was pretty impressive. In 1967, Sony would launch the ICC-500 Sobax, S-O-B-A-X. It was an electronic desktop calculator. It's kind of a predecessor to a personal computer. And Sobax, by the way, stood for Solid Abacus. Sexy. In 1968, Sony would enter a 50-50 venture with CBS Incorporated to create CBS slash Sony Records Incorporated. Uh, This particular entity changed names and branding several times. In 1973, it became the CBS Sony Incorporated. In 1983, it became CBS slash Sony Group Incorporated. And then eventually Sony would purchase the company and make it a wholly owned subsidiary in 1987. And in 1991... They renamed it Sony Music Entertainment Incorporated. And here's where history gets really super complicated. I mentioned this at the beginning of the first episode of this. We're not just talking about Sony anymore. Sony had uh, merged with this or created a division, and then that division merged with an existing entity. And that existing entity actually was older than Sony was. Uh, the CBS Incorporated entity, and I'm specifically talking about their music not not CBS, not the television company, but the music bra- branch of the company. It had been around since 1929. Back then it was called the American Record Corporation. And then it became the Columbia Recording Corporation in 1938. CBS bought it in 1966. 1968, Sony creates this division and merges it with the CBS division. And so it's funny because Sony traces its history to 1946 But this particular branch that now is a wholly owned subsidiary under Sony dates back to 1929. And I could do a full episode just on Sony Music as well as the other big entertainment divisions in Sony. And maybe someday I will. But instead of going into the full history of Sony Music, which would extend this series out like by three episodes or something. And I don't want to do that to you guys. Here's some highlights instead. First, Sony Music became one of the only few major players in music publishing. If you've ever looked into the music publishing world, you realize that when it comes to big labels, there are only a few of them. And that is not always great, right? If you've only got a few big companies, then you have the potential for uh, shenanigans. And in fact, that did happen. Uh, in the 90s, music companies, including Sony, were accused of price-fixing music CDs. I'm sure some of you remember CDs. Anyway, eventually, these companies were fined more than $60 million in a settlement, although as part of that settlement, they did not admit to any wrongdoing. They also had to distribute something like $70 million worth of CDs to various public and, and non-profit organizations 
So that was not a great mark for any of those music companies, including Sony. And another controversy that included Sony Music happened when it uh, back when it was Sony BMG, and that's another complicated story that I'm not going to go into here. Again, if I if you guys want, I will do uh, episodes about Sony Music to tell you more. But here's what I think is important, and it really plays into the tech stuff space. In 2005, people found out that the copy protection on some Sony BMG CDs was atrocious. Not only was it uh, invasive, it actually caused real problems. Uh, see, if you were to put one of these CDs into a computer, it would copy over DRM software onto your computer, which would change your computer's operating system. Now, the reason for this was to attempt to block any any way of copying the CD. They wanted to prevent piracy. But... The software was not easy to uninstall. It would install itself on a computer and you couldn't easily take it off. And it created a security vulnerability, which meant that hackers could get remote access to a person's computer through that vulnerability. So in other words, Sony's actions punished legal customers, people who actually bought the CD by making their computers vulnerable to remote hacks, which is not a good thing. This is also one of those classic arguments that people point to and say, a lot of DRM, digital rights management strategies, end up hurting the legal customer and ignores the actual problem of piracy. In fact, what it does is it encourages people to go through the route of getting a pirated copy because typically your pirated copies have all of this protection stripped away from it so it won't affect you in a negative way. Uh, this is one of those stories that people point to and say, this is what I'm talking about. Well, by 2007, Sony had changed its tune on this DRM and paid a massive amount of money in a series of legal settlements and recalled some, but not all, of the CDs. Anyway, the important thing to remember is this. Uh, when Sony began to branch out beyond developing electronics and got into the publication business, that was a big deal. Like, it, they were no longer just uh, an electronics company. This goes back to that strategy they had when they first named the company Sony. They decided to call it Sony Corporation and not Sony Electronic Industries or something like that, specifically because they knew this would be a possibility, that they would branch out into other markets besides electronics. Now let's get back to the technology and to 1968. So that same year, Sony opened up Sony United Kingdom in the UK, where you'd expect it to be. And since the development of the CV2000 reel-to-reel videotape recorder, Sony had begun to work on creating a video cassette recorder, which was a pretty tough challenge. But they identified the potential of a huge market for it. Because, see, reel-to-reel tape is tricky. You have to take the film from one reel. It's wound up on the reel. You have to take the end of that film, feed it through the head of the videotape recorder, out the other side, and then you have to thread it onto the the uh, second reel. And then when you operate the device, it means that the reels turn in such a way so that uh, the tape is pulled by the initially empty reel and it unwinds on the other one while it winds on what used to be the empty one, right? So you've got this whole thing and you just connect the two onto the device. But it means that, you know, handling that film... You decrease the lifetime of it. Uh, you you in, increase the chance that you're going to damage the film. Uh, cassettes had a real big advantage. All of that stuff would be contained within a cassette. And 
then it, that means it would be protected from your grubby hands or from dust. Um, it would remain viable longer. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, you would have to figure out, well, how do you make it work? What's the mechanism that gets the tape to feed through the head of the VCR? How do you get this thing that's contained within a plastic cassette so that it goes through the part of your player that can actually read the material that's been magnetically stored on the tape. And it took several years of work to get a working prototype. When they did get a working prototype, they called it the U-Matic VTR. That was purely an in-house prototype, just a proof of concept. Uh, and Ibuka, when he saw it, said, this is great. Just think how fantastic the next one's going to be. And he wanted the video cassettes to get down to the size of about a paperback book which was much smaller than the version that they had for the prototype. By 1973, the group was working that was working on the VCR spun off from the development division it had been part of, and it officially became known as the Betamax R&D Group. Sony's first Betamax VCR would debut on May 10th, 1975, and the company offered two models. There was one that was a standalone VCR. That one was called the SL6300. And there was also a TV VCR combo. It was called the LV1801. So if you think those television uh, player combos are a relatively new thing, no, nah, they date all the way back to the 70s. In 1976, Sony would turn 30 years old. And that was also the year that Masaru Ibuka would step down as the chairman of Sony. He stayed on as an advisor for the rest of his life, but he was no longer in a leadership position. But that's also the year that JVC announced that the VHS format for the VCR uh, was going to come out, and the VCR wars began. Now, to learn more about Betamax, VHS, and VCRs, you can check out the classic Tech Stuff episode, Tech Stuff Sets Its VCR, which published way back on March 12, 2012. Basically, Betamax and VHS entered into a massive format war, and you had two sides. It's kind of like Braveheart with the Scots and the English. So you had Sony and Toshiba and Sanyo Electric and NEC, Iowa and Pioneer on one side. And then on the VHS side, you had JVC, uh, Matsushita, uh, Hitachi, Mitsubishi Electric, uh, Sharp and Akai Electric were all on that side. And then they went to fight. And Betamax had certain advantages over the VHS format, but in the end, VHS won out. For one thing, VHS, VHS sets initially needed fewer components to build, which meant it was more attractive for the manufacturing process. So VHS would eventually become the standard, and Betamax essentially faded into history. I mean, that was still being used in the production side of things, but not on the consumer electronics side. Now, that's not to say that Betamax was a dud. It actually did pretty well. Sony did some pretty good business leading up to its eventual decline. But by the early 1980s, the writing was kind of on the wall. And by 1988, Sony began to make VHS sets, which was kind of the the admission that Betamax was no longer going to be a powerhouse. The fact that they were going to start making the competing technology was a pretty tough pill to swallow. You know, you had these people at Sony who took great pride in the fact that they developed the Betamax format, but eventually they had to admit that it wasn't going to win out over VHS. Uh, VHS or Betamax would stick around a little bit longer, but really, uh, it was it was almost unheard of by 1988. Anyway, well, that concludes this episode 
of the Sony story. There's still a ton to talk about. There's some stuff that happened during the VCR wars that I want to cover in our next episode. Plus, obviously, continue the story and try and get as close to modern day as I possibly can. Uh, there are a lot of things that are complicated that I need to talk about, including Sony Pictures. That is another company that predates the Sony Corporation itself, if you look at the core of that company. Um, so we have some more to talk about. Uh, if you guys have suggestions for future topics, maybe you want me to talk about Sony Music. Maybe you want me to do a full episode about Sony Pictures. Uh, I'll, I'll go into a little bit of detail next episode, but again, I won't go into a full episode on it. But if you want to hear more about that kind of stuff or any other topic, let me know. Send me a message. The email is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. And if you haven't friended me yet or followed me, what more do I got to do, man? I'm working my butt off here. Come on. It's just me. I'm so lonely. So very lonely. Anyway, I'll talk to you guys next week, and I hope you have a great one. Uh, let's talk again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>